You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. Today, we continue our summer sermon series, I Am, with a message from Pastor Tom Wood titled, Way, Truth, Life. Let's check it out. Well, good morning, good morning. It is wonderful to come and be a part of Church with you. So glad that you're able to be here. Those of you online, so glad that you're able to be a part of everything going on. Uh, we talked about Fall Fest a lot today, and so we're looking forward to that coming up. And I want to let you know, if you want to see Mike Chiz on a bounce house, be at Fall Fest. There's, a, there's also a rumor that he's going to be stood by the food truck paying for everyone's lunch. And uh, at the moment, it is just a rumor. Let's see if it comes true. Anyway, so looking forward to that coming up. But we are um, coming towards, I would even say, the tail end of our summer series, which is uh, crazy to think about. But we are in a summer series that we've titled, I Am. And there are seven times in John's gospel where Jesus says, I am, and then says something about himself. It's a way that Jesus is teaching about who he is. It's to let the disciples know. It's to let the followers of Jesus to know. It's so that we can know who he is, how amazing he is, what it means to follow him, what it means to put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And that word, I am, and this is what we really spent the first week of this, going back a number of weeks now, but we looked at the, the power of those two very, very short English words, I am. I am, and it comes all the way back to the Old Testament, and it's really where God talks to Moses at the burning bush all the way back in Exodus 3. And we're told, I am, and when Jesus first drops that, I am, it is a loaded term that lets anyone listening that Jesus is connecting himself to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is connecting him. This is me. I am God walking in flesh. I am the Son of God. I am here. And there are seven times where Jesus will use that term, I am, and then a different attribute to describe himself to hopefully bring understanding to those of us listening who he is, what it means to follow him. So we're going to look at another one of those today. We've already looked at Jesus being the bread, the light, the gate, the shepherd. Last week, we looked at the resurrection and the life. And today, we're going to continue in John 14. And before we get into the passage that we're going to look at today, it's only fair for me to let you know that uh, the scriptures we're going to be looking at, it's part of a much bigger section of John's gospel. So in John's gospel, there's a section known as the farewell discourse. And to show respect to the scripture and really kind of recognize it for what it is, we, we have to recognize that this is a much bigger portion of scripture, and we're going to be looking at a teeny tiny piece of it. If you have a Bible uh, where the words of Jesus are printed in red, which many Bibles have, if you turn to John's gospel and you go to chapter 14, you'll notice that John 14 through 17 is almost entirely red. And that's essentially one portion of teaching that Jesus gives about himself, and that's known as the farewell discourse. And so we're going to be looking at a small portion of that today. And where we're going to be jumping in, this is uh, the same evening where Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. They've had the Last Supper together. Judas has got up and is going ready to betray Jesus. And the events that are all taking place are all building towards the trial and consequently crucifixion of Jesus. Now in John 13, we see Jesus saying this. This is going to help set up and help frame where we're going. John 13, verse 33. Dear children... I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you cannot come where I am going. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. So with that in mind, let's jump to our text in John 14. Sign verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? 
When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the, uh, the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now, the prospect of Jesus leaving, learning that they won't be able to go with him, the uncertainty about when and how they're going to be reunited with him, trying to make sense of the promise that he will return one day, causes Thomas to ask the question, we don't know where you're going, so how are we supposed to know the way? Now, all of this together, from what we just read as we get into our main verse today, it shows that there is a definite confusion among the disciples. This is not a, a message that Jesus has given at a time where things are steady and filled with confidence and optimism and certainty and predictability. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, suggesting that the disciples have really good reasons for having their hearts troubled. But as we'll see, Jesus is giving them greater reasons to not let their hearts be troubled. Now, it's worth pointing out, and this is something that I was thinking about quite a lot this week. It was quite interesting to kind of roll around in my mind, but it's easy to observe that the 12 men that Jesus called together to be his disciples, they're often clueless as the gospels describe them. They're often confused and are uncertain about what it is that Jesus is doing, how he's working in the world, what he's up to, what his teachings mean. I would even go as far as to say that the disciples repeatedly show themselves to be ignorant about what Jesus is doing and saying. And it's tempting, I think, for us to criticize and belittle them and look down on them for missing the point. But what really kind of got me thinking this week is we only know what they didn't because we can read Jesus explaining these things to them. It was their questions and their confusion and their ignorance that led to much of Jesus' teaching that has been recorded in the Bible and consequently has been bringing understanding, correction, and direction for 2,000 years. There's a lot of times the disciples having these moments of confusion, having these moments of questions that has prompted Jesus to give a teaching that fortunately for us has been recorded in the Bible. And when our life of faith, that adventure of following Jesus, it brings us to the moments of confusion and questions and uncertainties. I wonder if what we need is what the disciples got that day, a strong, decisive, reassuring word from Jesus. When things don't make sense, when life is unfair, when we're uncertain about how all this is going to play out, when our confidence is gone, where following God doesn't seem predictable, what the disciples got in their moment of confusion about, okay, how is this going to go? We want to go with you, but you're talking about you. We can't go with you. We're not sure how this is all going to work. Are you going to come back? What does that all mean? And that moment of confusion, the disciples got a strong, decisive, reassuring word from Jesus. And I wonder if that's what we need when we have our moments of questions, when we have our moments of confusion, that we need a strong, decisive word from Jesus. The disciples had been dismayed that Jesus was now telling them that he would be leaving but here, he makes an unshakable promise that his leaving is going to be for their betterment because he's preparing an eternal place for them. And in response to their confusion, their uncertainties, their questions, he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. To all their questions, all their uncertainties, to being at a point where it just didn't make sense, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. For the disciples who were wrestling uncertainties, fears, confusions about their life and faith and what following the Messiah would look like, Jesus comes in strong and gives a decisive final word on things, who he is, his authority, even his character and trustworthiness. That's how we should listen to this. It's not something that was said when everyone is feeling great about life. 
These words were not spoken to the disciples where they were filled with optimism, where they were certain about how all this was going to work out, when it all made sense. No, it was said when they were filled with doubt and confusion and they were weirded out by the whole thing. And they had no idea what was going on, when the faith didn't make sense, when expectations and reality didn't line up. And what does Jesus say to that environment? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only one. There is no other way. It is correct and appropriate that you trust, that you have confidence, and that you find your purpose uniquely in me. As I was, uh, as I was reading around this passage this week and trying to do some study, one of the things that came up repeatedly from the different commentators and the different scholars that I was able to read is that the way, truth, and life are written as three distinct nouns. There's written like three different attributes of Jesus that he's saying in one breath. But I am the way, one. I am the truth, two. I am the life, third. In translating from the original Greek into English, it's tempting to try and kind of combine those to make a sentence that makes sense. Something like, I am the truthful way to life. Or life is found in truth and I'll show you the way. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. He's stating three different nouns. He's stating three different ways. This is who I am. The reading his words that we can learn something about who he is. And it's those three things. And so I want to take those individually today and take some time to look at all three individually. And hopefully there's something helpful here. Sound like a plan? All right, let's take a moment and pray. Lord, take something from this scripture that you shared with your disciples, your words, 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we believe by faith that they are as true today as they were then. That there's something here for us today. Lord, we lift up this time, this time that we've gathered together. Lord, I pray that you take something from this, the Bible verses we're going to look at. And Lord, that something grabs a hold of our hearts, something changes the way we think about life. Lord, for anyone here where life may be a struggle right now, that they may find some answers here. They may find some relief here. They may find a renewed confidence in you from these passages. Lord, above everything else, may the words of Tom Wood fade to the background and your words grab a hold of people's heart today. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. Firstly, I am the way. I am the way. Thomas Ask Jesus in John 14, verse 5, how can we know the way? Now, the flow of the conversation suggested that this means we want to go with you. We want to follow you. We want to go wherever it is that you are going. If you're going somewhere else, tell us where so we can go also. Peter similarly asks, where are you going? Jesus' closest followers and friends want to know where he's going so they can go with him, but they don't know how. And to that, Jesus says, I am the way. How do we get there? Me. We want to go where you're going. We want to be wherever you will be. How do we get there? Me. Through Jesus, he is the way. Now, the New Testament, as I've already alluded to today, but the New Testament, including John's gospel, was originally written in Greek. And I, for one, am very grateful for the incredible men and women that have worked diligently to translate the Bibles we have in English from the original Greek. But the Greek word that's used here for way is the word hodos. If I said that incorrectly, my dad will let me know later. But elsewhere in the New Testament, that Greek word hodos is translated uh, a number of different ways. It's also translated as road or street and path and even journey. So 
to use that in what Jesus is saying is, what's the road we need to take to get us where you're going? What street will lead us to where you will be? And Jesus says, me. I am the road. I am the path. I am the way. Keep following me. Keep focused of traveling with me. If you want to get where I am going, just concern yourself with sticking close to me. Even earlier in the conversation, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Jesus is bringing stability and confidence to a tumultuous time. He's telling us he's the way. The opposite of knowing the way is being lost. And every single person anywhere ever hates being lost. Now, we, of course, have all been lost, whether we're in a new city for the first time, whether it's driving or in a new building, something like that. And it's always unnerving. That feeling of being lost, we're trying to get somewhere and we can't. That feeling of we're trying to find our way, we've got a goal in mind, there's somewhere we want to be, but we just can't figure it out. Every single one of us has been there. And every single one of us hates that feeling. If you're driving, you turn the music down to try and sharpen your other senses. Because heaven forbid, you should be trying to find your way while listening to Bob Dylan. We all hate that feeling of being lost. My parents recently, when they came from the UK to the States, just last month they were here with us, and they had an awful time getting lost at JFK Airport. And so they got on a, you know, a train that took them somewhere else, and then they got on a bus that took them somewhere else. And according to them, they ended up right back in the same terminal they started in. My dad has since sworn he's never going back to JFK Airport. I think they're going to get a transatlantic flight to LAX and then get to Syracuse before going back to JFK. But roll with me for a second for the sake of illustration. Let's imagine that following Jesus is like following him on a path. That to faithfully follow Jesus means sticking close to him on a path, not veering off to the left or to the right, but just staying with him on a path. Now, being in the will of God means staying on the path. Roll with me for the sake of illustration. Consequently, if you step off the path and quickly catch yourself, it feels pretty easy to get back on the path. This, this may be, you know, getting off the path, it may be doing something we regret, it may be a mistake, whatever, but it's a momentary thing that's taken us off the path. And if we catch ourselves quickly, it feels easy to just get back on the path because we know God is good, He's forgiving, He's graceful, He's merciful. So we sort of quickly sort of step off. Getting back on the path seems pretty straightforward, and I think that's okay. But what's not said often enough is that no matter how far you stray from the path, months or years of walking away from God, months or years of abandoning faith, whether it's by casually drifting away from faith or whether it's actively running away from God in pure defiance, it doesn't matter how far off the path we go, it doesn't matter how long we take ourselves off that path, the very second we call on Him, we are right back on the path. The very moment, the very moment we repent, turn back to God, we are slap bang in the middle of the plans and purposes and the will of God. A few verses that speak to this loudly. James 4, come close to God and God will come close to you. From Zechariah, therefore say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, return to me and I will return to you. From the book of Psalms, the Lord is close to all who call on him. 
the return to the will of God, to be in the center of his plans and purposes, it happens in an instant, no matter how far you've gone off the path. True repentance, returning to him, calling on him, coming close to him, immediately puts you and I back into a loving relationship with the Lord God Almighty. His love is so perfect that he is ready and waiting to set us straight the very moment we call on his name. If one person claps, we all have to. Amen. Now, of course, we all know that the process of leaving sin behind and letting God clean us up can be long and even painful at times. There may be a season of restoration and healing and remedying wrongs, but it means that restoring and healing and the remedy within the will of God is doing it from the path, and we get there within a split second of saying, God, I'm coming back to you. I'm calling on your name. I am coming close to you. I am coming back to your will. In a moment, after years of drifting, after years of abandoning God, no matter how far off the path you run, in a moment, we are back. I wrote this down, and this was a helpful way for me to think about it. Someone can walk a million miles away from God, but we are never more than one step away from being back into the perfect will of a loving Father. I wanted, to, I wanted to share that today specifically. I believe, I know that there are many here, and there, I'm sure there are some that I don't know about, that for parents, you have children that you're brokenhearted about because they've drifted from faith. And it may be extremely discouraging, extremely upsetting. I know because I've, I've had some of these conversations with you guys. I want to let you know, and hopefully this is a timely reminder for some of you today, this return to the path can happen in a moment, in a moment. And I'm not saying that instantly someone comes back and all the pain of the past and all things just instantly become undone. No, 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 we're too grown up to know that that's not always the case. But make no mistake, the moment someone says, I'm coming back, they are right in the middle of the will of God. They are right back in the love of the Father. There is no having to undo all the reasons that have taken them off the path just to get back. No, 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 you get on the path the very moment you decide, I want to get back on the path. I want to get back to following Jesus as the way, we're right back in the middle of his will. So for those parents, I really hope that's some encouragement for you today. All right, everyone doing okay? All right, second thing, Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. Now, as we've been doing this series, looking at the I am statements from John's gospel, possibly one of the things that's come out of this that I've really appreciated is that uh, we, we've learned through this. I think a number of the scriptures have pointed to this, that as there are very important things to us as humanity that we want from God, that we're expecting from God. And what we can glean from this, and I really hit on this last week, is that it's not about I need sustenance, Jesus, give me sustenance. Or I need guidance, so Lord, give me light. It's, no, you need these things, so I give you myself. And in giving you myself, you find all of this and far much more. And that's one of the things that I will always be grateful for this series for, is that with the things that we need for life, it's not something that God gives us. He is not a vendor of happiness. He gives us himself. And in having him, then we find sustenance and light, and we find guidance, and we find a good shepherd. It's by having him. And so we don't just need Jesus to give us some truth. We need us to give him himself, and in that we will find the truth. Now, this whole concept of truth, it's something that John really develops over the course of his gospel. And so I want to go through uh, really how John has built this idea of truth in the gospel before coming to this point where Jesus declares, I am the truth, all the way back in John 1. 
The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Chapter 4. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Chapter 6. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Chapter 8. Who are you, they demanded. Jesus replied, the one I have always claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So the Jews who had believed in Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word of God has become humanity and is full of grace and truth. Living by the truth means we step out of darkness and into the light. Worship and devotion to God will be done in spirit and in truth. The true sustenance, the true bread of life is Jesus. The Father who sent the Son is completely truthful. And it is the truth that will set someone free. Living in truth means we understand grace. We can abandon sin and live in the light. We can worship in step with the Spirit that we can experience the sustenance to keep going. It's through truth that we see the authentic heart of God towards humanity. And it is truth that sets us free. And what is this truth? Jesus told them, I am the truth. For someone to claim, I am the truth, it must mean that there are absolutely no falsehoods within them. They neither tell lies nor believe lies. They only believe the truth and have only ever said the truth. The only thoughts they have are true. The only motives they have are honest. Lies and deception and manipulation don't fool them for the slightest moment. And not a single utterance they make is intended to mislead, misrepresent, manipulate, or deceive. They have never been untruthful and could never be untruthful. That person has the words of life because every word is true and every word corrects a lie. And there is only one person who can make such a claim and be taken seriously. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. When he says, I am the truth, it should cause us to wonder about the implications of such a claim. And when we find ourselves agreeing wholeheartedly, the weight and the significance of his words, his promises grows and grows for those that believe. In moments of uncertainty, in moments of confusion, remembering I am the truth builds confidence in him. Third thing, I am the life. I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
Now in this series, especially last week, we talked a lot about the idea of life. The idea about there being resurrection, life, that was of course last week. And then the flow of everything else that Jesus is saying in this passage is clear that what he's pointing to in this moment is eternal life. And something from verse 2 helps us bring understanding for this. I'm going to read in a few different translations. The first one is from NLT, which is my go-to translation. Verse 2, there is more than enough room in my father's house. I want to read it from the old King James Version, which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with. In my father's house are many mansions. Now, a few hundred years ago, in English, the word mansion didn't mean, you know, a great big grand house, you know, a multimillionaire's house or palace or anything like that. That's something modern that that word has become, you know, has come to believe. The language has evolved. But when it was originally written, there was no indication, there's certainly no indication in the Greek that this means mansion or palace. And then the NASB, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, this word mansion and this word room that I want to spend a few moments considering together because I think there's something helpful here. For wealthier homes and fathers with great estates, 2,000 years ago in the culture that Jesus is speaking to, when the kids got married, particularly the sons, the father would build an addition to the house for the newlywed couple. So think about, you know, in the same way we would have a finished basement or an apartment above the garage. You hear what I'm saying? And the newlywed couple, that would be the room that they would get to stay in, in the father's house. They got a prepared room. I go and prepare a place for you. I go to the father's house, build an addition, so you can have a place to stay. The benefit wasn't the room. The benefit, what was important about it, the significance of it, is you were connected to the father's house. For the newlywed couple to be able to go and stay in the newly finished basement that had been prepared for them, or go and stay in the apartment above the garage that had been prepared for them, the benefit wasn't look at this extravagant place you get to go to. It was you get to live connected to the Father's house. To be connected to the Father's house meant protection and provision. It meant security and certainty about the future. You were part of the family. It's a picture of love and acceptance. And this poetic imagery, it contains the promise that Jesus is gonna go and prepare one of these rooms for his followers. In my Father's house, there are many rooms that have been prepared for believers so they can be joined to the Father's house. This illustration that Jesus makes is to help his followers understand something about the eternal life that we've been promised. Now my kids, like, Many kids, they ask me tons of questions about heaven. Unfortunately, they ask me lots of questions about hell as well. But Esther, she's incredibly concerned that some of her toys aren't going to make it to heaven. Elijah, he's got questions about the catering. Specifically, is there going to be a McDonald's? This is completely true. When I told Moses that no one dies in heaven... His reply was, what if someone sneaks a gun in? That was definitely a go ask your mom moment in the Woodhouse. But it's typical that kids have a curiosity and are drawn to questions about heaven, hell, and eternity. And truthfully, if we're being completely honest, biblically, we really don't have a lot of answers to these questions. I have an oversimplified answer that I would give youth students when I was a youth pastor. And it's simply this, and I stand by this today. 
No one goes to hell and says, it's better than I thought it would be. And no one goes to heaven and feels like they missed out. What we do know about heaven, specifically from this passage, about the eternal life that is promised to believers, is that's where Jesus will be. We do know that it's unimaginable perfection. We do know that there's no more weeping, no more pain, no more death, no more sin. But let's remember what Jesus says here. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now the promise of heaven is amazing. Truly amazing, it's life-changing. But the real promise, the most important promise, is that we can come to the Father. For years, I read that passage and I read the words on the page, but I interpreted it incorrectly. It's not, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can go to heaven except through me, which is how I read it for years. It's, no one can heal their broken relationship with the Father except through me. Now in human relationships, we all understand that if someone came to your house, made themselves at home, swam in your pool, if you have a pool, helped themselves to the food in the fridge, got settled on the couch to watch the game, and the whole time wanted nothing to do with you, that's a rude house guest. In human relationships, we get that doesn't work. That's not how human relationships work. If someone comes to the house, first and foremost is that there's the community, there's the relationship. You're in my house. Someone just wanting to come over for the benefit of the house and wanting nothing to do with you, yeah, that's weird. It doesn't work. We find that abrasive. We understand that that's not how relationships are supposed to work. And in Christianity, too often, we've made the message all about the promise of heaven. We've promised people that they can come to the house, but the true message of the gospel is the healed and restored relationship with the Father. That healed relationship means that Jesus has gone and prepared a room for us so that we can be an eternal resident of the Father's house. But it won't be as someone barging in and making ourselves at home all while ignoring the Father. There are countless people who have damaged and strained relationship with their parents. And if we were to look in simply terms of net loss and net gain, they're missing out on some good stuff because their relationship with their parents is sour. But we all recognize that first things first, you've got to fix the relationship. None of us would admire someone who is content to have a destroyed relationship, but demanded the perks. That's why our message is first and foremost about a restored and healed relationship with the Father because of what the Son accomplished on the cross. Now this passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a great verse and it's one of my favorites. The reason it's one of my favorites is uh, I was told as a preacher that you need to have a gospel message that on the drop of a hat you can share. And uh, so years ago I prepared a message Use this, this was the text that I went from. So that at a moment's notice, if someone says, hey, you gotta get up and you gotta preach the gospel, I was good to go. And I took this verse and I'll share with you the summary of this. And if you were here Groundhog Day in 2019, no, 2020, excuse me, you will have heard this because this was the message I shared when we were interviewing for the position. But the idea of I am the way is because we are lost. And being lost because we are distant from the Father. I am the truth because we have believed lies. We have believed that sin can help. And I am the life because as we know, 
The wages of sin is death. Sin always leads to death. I am the way because we're lost. I am the truth because we believe the lies. And I am the life because lies lead to death. Through Jesus, we can come to the Father. I want to share a parable with you. This doesn't have anything to directly do with the portion we've been looking at today in John's Gospel. But it helps us understand the Father heart of God. Luke 15, many of you all know this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. The son is very literally saying, I want to live as if you, dad, were dead. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About, the same, about this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the parts he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to sue a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This parable shows the heart of God towards humanity. The father rushing to welcome home the repentant son, not just letting him live as a servant in the house, but abundantly restoring him as a beloved son, throwing a huge feast to publicly celebrate the return of the son who wished him dead. The son that wasted a massive portion of his wealth, the son that brought shame on the family. And he even goes and pleads with the older brother to join him in celebrating his safe return. This powerfully shows the heart of God. The Father that loves us lavishly. And no one can come to the Father except through me. 
these words of Jesus, they're completely exclusive. This is only possible because of Him. And despite being completely exclusive, they are also completely inclusive because everyone is invited. Everyone is invited to have a healed and restored relationship with the Father. Everyone is invited to have the prodigal son experience of being lavished with the love of the Father by being given the grace and the forgiveness that they do not deserve. Jesus goes on in this passage from John to explain more about his relationship with the Father. Verse seven, if you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. The tragic reality that every single one of us shares is that sin has destroyed our relationship with the Father. But the greatest news that you and I will ever hear is that Jesus Christ on the cross made it possible to heal that broken relationship with the Father. He truly is the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas Kempis, he wrote these words. It's a well-known passage. He wrote this about our passage that we've been in today. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the invaluable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign true, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. If thou remain in my way, thou shalt know the truth, and the truth shall make thee free, and thou shalt lay hold on eternal life. In the uncertainty, the confusion, the unpredictability of life, Jesus comes and addresses our concerns with a strong, decisive word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The importance of locking our focus on Him, following Him, confident that He is the way. Remembering that we may walk a million miles away from God, but we are never more than one step away from being back in the perfect will of God. For someone to claim, I am the truth, it must mean that there are absolutely no falsehoods within them. They neither tell lies nor believe lies. That person has the words of life because every word is true and every word corrects a lie. And the only person who can make such a claim is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the life. He is the life. And that brings the promise of eternal life. He is preparing a room for us in the Father's house so that we can know the Father's eternal protection and provision, security, being a part of the family as a perfect picture of love and acceptance. And our message is first and foremost, not the benefits of heaven, but rather a restored and healed relationship with the Father because of what the Son accomplished on the cross. It's completely exclusive. Jesus is it, the only way but it's also completely inclusive because everyone is invited. Everyone 
is invited to have the prodigal son experience of being lavished with undeserved love, forgiveness, and grace. I've got a couple of questions for you. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write these down. If you wanna type this in your phone, something to think about and maybe pray through this week. The first question is, is our life of faith driven by wanting a place in the house or a restored relationship with the Father? Is our life of faith driven by wanting a place in the house or a restored relationship with the Father? The second question, what difference does living in the truth make? What difference does living in the truth make? If we drift from the truth, how can we make sure we get back? How can we make sure that we're focused on the way, the truth, and the life again? What difference does it make to live in the truth? Luke 15, 22, we read this just a moment ago. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may be here today and I don't know the story about how you end up in church on this Sunday morning, but you're here. And maybe it's never crossed your mind. Maybe it's something you've been thinking about a lot lately. I don't know about your relationship with the Father. There is a heaven, there is a hell. That is a part of the message of Jesus. But first and foremost is the reality, the terrifying reality, that humanity has a broken relationship with their creator. But because of the cross, because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, that relationship can be healed, both here on earth and into eternity. That relationship with God can be restored. My friend, if you're here today and you're unsure if you have a repaired, restored, and a healed relationship with the Father, I'd love to pray with you as a first step in you living that life of a healed relationship with a God who loves you way more than I could ever describe. So I want to invite everyone here, if you mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. Let's just give some privacy and some discretion to everyone around you so we can focus on what really matters right now. But if you be honest and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not living close to God. I'm distant from God. I'm off that path you talked about. But I want to get back. I want to heal my relationship with God. My friend, I would love to pray with you. And if that's you, would you just put your hand in the air? I give you my word. I won't embarrass you or do anything to weird you out. But I'd love to know who I'm praying for. Wonderful. Anyone else here? Amen. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Wonderful. Amen. Amen. We pause for a moment. Is there anyone else? I won't do anything to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything that you're going to regret on the drive home. But if this is you today, I'd love to pray with you and we all pray together in a moment. Anybody else that wants to be included? Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with these people that have made the best decision any of us could ever make. Wonderful. Amen. Well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to pray a prayer together. We do this at the end of all our services. The words are on the screen. I want to encourage everyone here, pray along with me as we believe that lives are being transformed in here. So come on, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. 
Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and to heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's celebrate with people making the best decision. Amen.